The first reading this morning is from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, second reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Thank you, Esther. Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, it's great to see so many of you here today. My name is Jonathan Hoffman. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, WDBC. Uh, welcome. We are joining, starting a new series today uh, through the Gospel of Luke, and we will be in Luke's Gospel for the bulk of uh, this year. And I'm very excited for what the Lord's going to be teaching us through this Gospel. Uh, anybody here a professional athlete? Just curious, I might get your autograph. Anyone here uh, maybe played some sport in, in uni or club sport? Any club sports people here? We got, we got a few, we got a few. Uh, well, I've never had the privilege of being an athlete uh, myself, but I've been told that there's this thing with athletes where if you suffer a major injury and then you try to come back from that injury, that it can be a little bit of a mental hurdle as you go about the process of testing uh, your newly healed limb or muscle or whatever it might be. Uh, I had this experience, though, uh, as last year I underwent a hip uh, replacement. Uh, you may have a grandmother or a grandfather or a great aunt who's had a hip replacement uh, or someone like myself, but uh, we went on a hike last year, and it, it was, actually not last year, it was a couple weeks ago, and as a family we're out on a hike, and it was amazing to me to see how uh, ill-prepared I was to actually test this hip out. Uh, every step felt, uh, I felt a little bit uncertain as we were going up and down. I was being very cautious and very careful. And even though there was no pain, even though I didn't suffer any sort of injury, psychologically, mentally, there was this space that I was in where I wasn't quite sure if I could trust this thing that had happened. And Luke, as he begins his gospel, he's writing for to a man named Theophilus, who similarly is feeling a bit uncertain uh, after his healing. Uh, some say he's a believer. Some say he is maybe just a seeker. Uh, whoever he was, and we don't really know who exactly he was, uh, we know he probably had some means because he commissioned Luke to do to write this gospel. Uh, but he's writing to someone who's a little bit, little bit unsure, a little bit. Uh, looking for some footing in his faith. Now, we've just wrapped up a series on what it means to leave the kingdom of this world to enter the kingdom of God. And we've seen that, that is a, that's a transition or a migration, if you will, that each of us are undergoing. And faith is the thing that pushes us forward, but sometimes we're a bit unsure of our footing, aren't we? 
This gospel, the gospel of Luke, uh, is going to explain to us the way of salvation. Every message in the gospel of Luke can be boiled down to this. It's saying something to us about the way of salvation. And here in the first four verses in this prologue, Luke wants Theophilus to know that this is a way that he can be sure of, a way to be sure. Would you pray with me uh, as we begin our time in God's word this morning? Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege it is to have in our hands the carefully transmitted documents of the eyewitnesses. Lord, of those who have been walking in the truth and pass it forward to us. Father, would you encourage us through your Holy Spirit this morning to hear what your word says to us. Father, may you prepare us. And for those here this morning who are looking for footing, for a firm foundation, I pray that you would encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so this, in the first four verses, uh, this is Luke's prologue, his introduction. I want to give you a little bit of overview in terms of the context of the gospel of Luke. Just a few things, a few facts, a few placeholders for you. You may want to jot them down or just commit them to memory. A few things about the gospel of Luke. Uh, scholars always debate the date of authorship, but most likely Luke's gospel is written in the late 70s AD. This is probably 40 years after, the, around about 40 years after the resurrection of Christ. If you go with current thinking, uh, the first gospel written was likely Mark's gospel, which was written about 65 AD. Luke's probably writing uh, late 70s AD. It is a well-attested, a very well-attested among the Gospels in terms of Luke and authorship. Uh, It's well-attested in the early second century, largely in part due to a heretic named Marcion. You might have heard of the name Marcion. Uh, He's sort of an arch-heretic. He believed that Luke's gospel was the only gospel worth reading, and it was the only gospel that was inspired after his amendments. (laughs) He went through and he struck a bunch of things out of Luke's gospel, and he said, this is the true and the only gospel. And in the early church fathers discoursing about this, we have a lot of attestation to Luke's gospel around 120 to 140 A.D. It is, as I said, likely the third gospel written, uh, and Luke, when he's writing, is relying on uh, apparently a number of different sources. So there's, uh, he, he's relying likely on Mark. Uh, he's also likely relying on uh, what some scholars have termed a Hebrew gospel, a gospel that was written in the original Hebrew language, uh, which is not preserved in our canon, but likely is being used. Uh, and this is what Luke refers to in the very first line of his gospel when he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So Luke, as he writes this gospel, he's understanding that he's not, he's not trying to reinvent something. He realizes that others have gone before him. Others ha- have sought to do what he's trying to do as well. He's not necessarily even looking at what they've done and saying it was bad or wrong. Rather, he's trying to be the next link in the chain, if you will. Uh, And finally, the structure of this gospel is quite interesting. You have uh, kind of a double introduction. You have the birth narrative of John the Baptist, the birth narrative of Jesus. Then you have the introduction of the ministry of John the Baptist and the introduction of the ministry of Jesus. And then, of course, you have the passion narrative at the end. 
with the four accounts of the resurrection given at the end of the gospel. But in between, there's really three movements in Luke's uh, gospel in the body of this, this book. In those three movements, you have the Galilean ministry of Jesus when he's, he's up near Capernaum. Then in the middle section, you have from roughly the end of chapter 9 all the way to chapter 18, you have a section of discourse uh, where no place names are really given, but it's a block of Jesus' teaching about the, the mission of the kingdom and the mission of a disciple. And then finally, sort of the third movement within the body of this gospel is Jesus and his journey towards Jerusalem, uh, which he would call himself his own exodus uh, from his ministry. Uh, Luke is... If you take Luke and Acts, he actually accounts for more of the New Testament than the Apostle Paul. Did you know that? Luke's gospel is uh, the full length of one parchment, and Acts, its sequel, is a complement to that. So there's a bit of information for you as we begin uh, to study Luke's gospel. Uh, our big idea this morning is that the gospel is worthy of urgent investigation. We're going to be talking about the gospel today, but I don't want you to miss the key theme or highlight that this thing that Luke is writing, and I'm going to call it a thing right now because I'm going to flesh it out later, but this thing that Luke is writing is worthy of everyone's investigation. It's worthy of being checked out, being heard, being examined. This morning we're going to see that Luke's prologue reveals five truths about the gospel that make it worth investigating, and that's the bulk of our time this morning. First, we see in verse 1 that the gospel is a narrative. It's a narrative. It's a story. I don't mean a fairy story or a fiction story. I mean it is a recounting the gospel we're going to see explains extraordinary events. Look with me, verse 1. Luke says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. We have this sense that there is an urgent need to explain the things that have happened. Did anybody buy stock in GameStop recently? I won't ask for a show of hands. Many of you who follow the financial uh, markets or follow the headlines would have read about GameStop and how this stock went on a wild ride from something about $20, $30 a share up to maybe at its peak $500 a share. Crazy. And the three days following its rise were, were spent trying to figure out why is this stock going up. Something extraordinary has happened. We've got to figure out what's the explanation for this. Luke's writing in his time about a series of events that people are aware of and they're trying to string them together and that, in the sense, is a narrative. It's a coherent story. It makes sense. It demands an accounting. You see, so often when we talk about the gospel, we talk to non-believers and they put the onus of burden on us to say, well, I need you to prove scientifically that this happened. You say you believe the Bible. You say you believe the Scriptures. You say you believe in Jesus. Well, I need you to prove it to me. But they're often forgetting that the Gospels were written not by a group of people. Sorry, Dan Brown. They're not written by a group of people sitting in a room, cloistered together, thinking, how can we take over the world by writing some religious fiction? No, the Gospel accounts emerged as people 
are hearing about this Jesus and they're needing an understanding, they're needing an accounting for who he is. C.S. Lewis, in his journey to faith, was prodded by this type of reasoning. You might want to stop and ask yourself, if there was no Jesus, how do we explain the church? How do we explain the rise of a religion that is based upon someone who died in the most ignominious way? How do we explain the reach of this religion from the backwaters of Israel, which was by no means a, a prime power place in the ancient world, all the way into Caesar's palace? How do you account for the conversion of numbers and numbers of people? How do you account for the spread of this when the people who were proclaiming it were being sent to their deaths? You see, you might get one crazy person, maybe two, maybe three, but 12, 11 of the 12 apostles being martyred for their faith, the 12th apostle himself being exiled. How many people do that for a lie? You see, there's something happening, and Luke says we need to account for this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of these things. Luke, actually in his preface here in the first uh, four verses of his gospel, he is employing very high Greek language. It's language that you'd find in a textbook of that day. Luke is, for his day and age, writing a scholarly piece of work. That's, that's how his introduction reads. His is the only gospel where for the first Right from the first, he doesn't actually begin with the good news. He actually begins with his purpose for writing. It's a narrative, and Luke is trying to explain extraordinary events. I want to ask, if you don't believe the gospel, how would you account for the extraordinary claims of Christianity, the claims of a Messiah who was dead and rose again? How do we account for the fame of this Jesus I mean, wouldn't it be simply easy to dig him up? To find the body? Or at least to have it die off in this generation? Why is it that the church seems to grow when it's persecuted? First and foremost, the gospel is a narrative. Secondly, the gospel, Luke, as Luke understands it, is revelation. It's revelation. He says, many have undertaken an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So Luke links the idea that there's these events that have happened, but they've come to us as a part of a pattern of long-awaited promises. And so the gospel is not only a narrative of events, the gospel is also revelation. It is, it is divine fulfillment of promises that were made long, long ago. We have an understanding of what Jesus meant by being the Messiah today, but back in his day, to be the Messiah in the Jewish kingdom meant you were the conquering hero. 
And while we know today that Jesus conquered and he rose from the dead and he brought victory in a way that no earthly ruler ever could, you can understand how it was a bit hard to miss because they'd been reading all of these prophecies. Luke has an understanding that the gospel is revelation, that it fits a pattern of divine promise and fulfillment. These are promises that we're begging for an answer. Let me ask you, Christian, is the Old Testament relevant for you? When was the last time you read the Old Testament? Luke writes this gospel because he's read the Old Testament and because in reading the Old Testament, he understands that there are things that God had declared and promised that needed to come to pass. And he's waiting for that fulfillment. He's waiting for that understanding. I don't know how you can be a Christian for a long time and not read the Old Testament. You're missing so much. So much of what God had planned. Our understanding of who Jesus is and what it means that he's the Messiah is rooted in what he's done. But Luke is writing because he has a sense that this is the missing piece. This is the one that makes the whole picture fall into place. And that's why he's writing this gospel. The gospel is narrative. The gospel is revelation. The gospel is also announcement or breaking news. The gospel reports news that is to be shared. Pastor Stephen was talking with me this week about uh, one commentator who gave, I think it was N.T. Wright, who gave the illustration that, you know, if you're all hanging out at the pub and somebody comes in and someone might walk in and say, hey, I got a promotion at work. And everyone says, oh, that's great. That's lovely. Yeah, yeah, good news. Happy for you. Someone else might come in and say, oh, hey, you know, guess what? Uh, I'm, I'm getting married. Oh, fa fa fantastic. Really, really good news. Somebody else might walk in and say, hey, fire. <laughs> or, hey, we're at war. Did you hear the news? The gospel is the kind of news that demands attention. It is the kind of news that would dominate the lower third of the news channel for days and days and days. It's news to be shared. Luke says, these things that have been fulfilled among us, verse 2, just as they were handed down, the idea here is carefully transmitted, either orally or in written form, carefully transmitted by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It's two descriptions of the same group of people. They were eyewitnesses and they were servants of the word, and they were carefully passing this down. Now, an eyewitness in the ancient world is just as valuable as an eyewitness today. If you saw somebody get gunned down in the street and you can say, well, yeah, I was there. I was standing on this corner and I watched that person. He pulled out, he pulled out a pistol. He was wearing a, you know, a red shirt and blue jeans and, and white shoes and a camo hat. And you get called into court. You can say, yeah, I was standing there. I saw him. He was wearing this, 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 this. The testimony of an eyewitness is extremely valuable and extremely credible. The gospel purports to be the news as given by those who saw it. 
Again, this is why Luke's preface here in verses 1 to 4 is extremely important for how we understand the New Testament and important for how we understand the reliability of the information that we've been given. These eyewitnesses are those who were with Jesus. This is very similar to what John would write in the beginning of his, uh, the epistle that we have is 1 John, where he says, those things that we have seen, that our hands have touched, <laughs> these things we report to you. In the early church, you, you pass an account as an eyewitness and account, not just because it sounds good, but because the implication is, if, if you don't believe me, well, go talk to that person. Fact check me. The gospel is real news, not fake news. Luke is reporting what has been passed down. Note, now note they were eyewitnesses, but they were also servants of the word. Servants of the word. Servants of the message that they were given, absolutely. Servants of the word of God, absolutely. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, Luke will describe when he speaks. A few times he will say, the word of God from the lips of Jesus. So yes, they, they, they were servants of, of the testimony of the proclamation of the resurrection. They were also servants of the teachings and the words of Jesus. And who can forget John's prologue? John chapter one, verse one, do you know what it says? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so the sense is that these apostles, the disciples who were going around with Jesus, watching him heal, listening to him teach, they're there at the Last Supper, they're there at the cross, they're there as he rose from the dead, as he's appearing to all these people. These are the ones who are passing down these accounts. And they are servants of the word. The word is not a servant of them. What a wonderful picture. Have you thought of yourself as a servant of the gospel? Take a moment right now and think about it. What, what news would have to break that would become so important that it would overtake the, every other authority in your life? We love our superhero movies or, or, or some people, I'm not, I'm not huge into this, into this genre, but dystopian movies. Anybody here like dystopian movies, right? Often in a dystopian movie, right, there's, there's one tragic, sad figure, right, who, who's given the key of knowledge and, and he or she has that one bit of information that is necessary for the survival of everybody else. And once they become a recipient of that information, the entire purpose that they exist, for which they exist changes. They might have had plans to go back to their home planet or plans to go back and start their life with, with this person. They had all these plans in mind, but, but when the news broke and they realized that they were the key to knowledge, suddenly their purposes and priorities were totally reoriented. Because the survival of others depended upon the message that they had received. And you begin to see why Luke says they were servants of the word. Think about it. What would have happened if Peter said, I'm just going to go fish? Come on, James. Come on, John. This is a bit hard. Let's go back to the old business. 
Let's go back. Let's, let, let, let's, let's make a nice life for ourselves. Imagine if Paul said, you know, I'm not going to preach. It's too, it's too confronting. They're not going to receive me. They're, I used to throw these people in jail. No one's going to believe me. I'm not going to stand up and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where would we be? Now, I don't mean to presuppose for any moment that God's plans and purposes would fail. But just like Paul says in Romans chapter 10, how are they going to believe if they don't hear? And how are they going to hear if nobody preaches it to them? And how are they going to, how's anybody going to preach if they're never sent? You see, because we need servants of the word. Have you stopped for a moment and thought of your life as a life that has been totally reoriented in service of this gospel. The news is so compelling, it's so demanding that it needs to be heard and proclaimed. It needs to be transmitted. And I'll just say one more thing on this. The gospel lives beyond its time and its culture. This news of Jesus is of a cosmic scale. It's not like the rise and the fall of an empire. It's not like the rise and fall of a president or, or a particular way of life. It's not, it's not about invention or industry or, or the latest fad or ability to do something. It's, it's news that is so compelling because it affects the very DNA and the essence of what it means to be a human. You see, it touches the mental, the emotional, the physical, every aspect of the human experience and existence. No wonder it transcends time. But even as it transcends time, brothers and sisters, even as the gospel transcends time, every generation needs to proclaim it again. I love to quote him. One of my favorite quotes D.A. Carson said was, we're always one generation away, one generation away, from the church leaving. Because it's not enough to assume the gospel, you need to believe the gospel. And so every generation has the burden of articulating the gospel in its culture, in its time, and that's possible to do only because the gospel transcends culture and transcends time. So you can convey it in your time and in your culture. But every generation needs to do it. So the gospel is narrative, the gospel is revelation, the gospel is announcement. Fourthly, the gospel is understanding. And here, Luke records that the gospel imparts a knowledge that is necessary for life. In verse 3, he says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Taught. This doesn't necessarily mean catechesis, but it's the same word that we get catechesis from. The idea is that the gospel is not a, a, a one-line statement to be heard, but, but this good news of Jesus Christ is something that you and I have to learn. You see, it's not a one-time hearing, it's an everyday learning. And all the old saints said, amen. <laughs> this is because the gospel brings to us a knowledge 
for life. It's a knowledge beyond or outside of human experience. The gospel is going to tell you something about God. It's going to tell you that, that you were made in his image and that you were obliged to worship and serve him in holiness and reverence. But the gospel is also going to tell you that you were powerless to do that because your life and your soul had been overrun by sin. And in your fallen, sinful condition, there was nothing you could do to bridge that gap between you and God. There had been erected a fundamental separation between the holy and the unholy, between the clean and the unclean, between God and yourself. And the gospel is going to tell you that God loved you so much that he decided according to the good pleasure of his will before time ever began that his son would become like you and that he would bridge that gap not by simply waving his hand but by bearing the punishment that you deserve so that at the same time God could retain his holiness and justice while also retaining the fundamental aspect of his character that is his love you see the gospel tells you that and the gospel tells you that this is true not because we want it to be true but it's been verified by the resurrection of this same Jesus by his overthrowing of death, by his doing away with the curse and the penalty of sin. You see, the gospel will teach you something about yourself. And you will learn how to deal with shame, and you will learn how to deal with anxiety, and you will learn how to deal with failure by preaching the gospel, applying the gospel to your life. And you will learn fundamentally that the gospel unites you to God and you are now restored in a relationship with your creator. And so this, this, this new voice that seems to be dominating your life and your existence is none other than the spirit of God who indwells you on the basis of faith. And that in trusting and walking with this Holy Spirit, you are being changed from the inside out. You're not just conforming to some sort of ritual, but some new work is happening inside you. And things are different than they were before. Sin used to be fun, and it's not fun anymore. Yes, you want to do it, but you grieve. Yes, you're tempted, and yes, you may stumble, but there is something changing inside of you as you want to please God. You find a new love and affinity for others who know God and reflect this character. You see, the gospel is teaching you something. Your relationships begin to change because you realize you don't have to be your own defender. You don't have to seek justice for yourself in every situation where you have been belittled. You realize that there is a thing called forgiveness, and if God forgave you, well, then maybe, maybe you can forgive the person who doesn't need to be, who doesn't, doesn't deserve to be forgiven. And suddenly, bitterness begins to get pulled out from your soul, and you become whole again. And you feel like you're breathing for the first time. Your soul has a drink from a well, and you're not thirsty when you drink from that well. You see, the gospel is teaching you. It's imparting a knowledge for life. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You begin to realize you're becoming what you were made to be 
That is someone who reflects the image of their creator. Luke understands that Theophilus had been taught these things. Are you being taught in the gospel? Are you learning the gospel? Billy Sunday once said, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. <laughs> your actual association with other people, if your mom's a Christian, your dad's a Christian, or your, your, your teacher or your friend, that doesn't mean anything. Do you believe the gospel? Are you learning and growing in the gospel? Have you been reconciled to your creator? Are you walking by faith in relationship with him? This is what Jesus invites you into. This is what the gospel is doing in your life. So the gospel is narrative. The gospel is revelation. The gospel is an announcement the gospel is understanding. But fifthly, and finally, the gospel, Luke says, is truth. It's truth. The gospel claims historical certainty. This is what Luke writes. He's writing so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. That word certainty means, means firmness, the stability of it. And as I was reading I went on a little bit of a rabbit trail trying to understand what does it mean by certainty. Does this mean like, you know, scientific experiment? You know, you, you, you stick the litmus paper in and it comes out this way or that way. What does it mean by certainty? It's the word that Luke uses here in the original language is, is what we base our word asphalt on or bitumen. And the idea is that you are making a surface stable or smooth. And Luke is writing to Theophilus because he says, I want you to know that that hope that, that, that you're walking on, that journey that you're progressing in, this, this, this path of faith, it, it's a level path. It's a firm path. You can trust it. As much as I was going up and down the, those steps on, on that hike in the mountains and I was stepping on stones, and I felt, I felt uncertain, but the path was firm. Luke wants Theophilus to know this path is firm. And so he gives what Mark Edwards would call the five pillars of assurance to Theophilus. And here Luke says his approach, and in his approach, you need to see these five pillars. First of all, it's, an, it's investigatory, right? Luke is... Luke is personally taking his time to search out these matters. Theophilus, you can trust me because I've looked into this. We've all been in the meeting where somebody says, oh, yeah, 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 that's how it goes. And then you ask the follow-up question, have you looked into this? No, not at all. What do you know about this? Nothing, nothing whatsoever. It's totally, totally foreign to me. Have you read any books on this? Nope. You read any articles on it? Nope. Oh, so why did you just say? <laughs> this is the opposite. Luke is saying, I've checked this out. I've looked into this. I've searched these things up. Now, we know Luke traveled with the Apostle Paul. We know that. He spent some years traveling with him. Uh, tradition puts Luke as a citizen of Syrian Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas spent significant time. There was great teachers and leaders in the faith there. So Luke would have traveled. He would have known Paul. Secondly, there's a totality in what Luke 
is presenting. Luke says, I've looked at everything. I, 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 I didn't just look at the bits that I wanted. I searched out everything. It was a thorough investigation. <clears throat> Thirdly, he says, there's a primacy to his work. In other words, he went back to the beginning. He didn't, he didn't sort of pick up halfway through the movie. No, he went back to the very beginning. And from that point is when he began his investigation. So Theophilus, you can trust me because I personally investigated. You can trust me because I looked at everything. You can trust me because I looked from the beginning. Fourthly, you can trust me because I've been careful. There's an accuracy. I'm not just getting through the course. Everyone's doing online education these days, right? They're running through their courses. Click, 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 click. Right? Get to the next slide, please. That's not what this is. Luke says, there's a a care and an accuracy to my thought. And fifthly, he's trying to write an orderly account. Now, this is not necessarily a chronological account, although there is a good chronology in it. But Luke's saying, I'm writing a coherent account. This is the person who's going to be telling you about Jesus. The person who through this gospel is going to be explaining to you and to me the way of salvation. Someone who says, I've personally checked it out. Someone who says, I've looked at everything. I went back to the beginning. I was careful. And in laying out this information, I presented it in a way that's orderly, that's coherent. Why? Luke says, I want you to be sure. I want you to know this hope that we're talking about is not some pie-in-the-sky fairy tale. It's a real hope. And that's the question I want to leave you with. Is this a real hope for you? Seriously. Is the gospel a real hope for you. Now, there's a number of different reasons why we, we might answer that question different ways. You know, some people, they're scared to investigate because they've been taught that, that the Christian message is antithetical to science and reason and that these things don't line up. And so they're afraid to do any investigating because they're worried that, oh, if I investigate, it's going to sort of debunk my faith and I, my, I know my faith is real. And so they withhold from investigating because they're scared. Does Luke sound like someone who is scared to you? Does he sound like someone who's afraid of the facts? Other people don't investigate because they're suspicious that maybe if they actually did, they might have to take some responsibility. You see, a lot of us love to claim ignorance, don't we? I want to know just enough. I want to be able to say, yeah, I clicked I agree on the agreement, but I didn't really read the terms and conditions. So if we get caught out later, we're like, oh, you know, nobody reads those anyway. Well, can I tell you, God's not going to open the gates of heaven, lay out the books of life, and say, you know what, I didn't think you were going to read the terms and conditions anyway. That's not how it works. God says, this is breaking news. It's fundamental. It is so important. In fact, this message is so important that it transcends time, culture, and even human beings. 
It doesn't serve them, they serve it, you see. So is this hope real for you? I want to challenge you. If you have not taken ownership of what the gospel actually says and you have not investigated it to the point where you can make a determination for yourself, I'm not saying become a Christian. I'm just saying make a determination for yourself that you know why you believe what you believe. Do that. And if you're someone like Theophilus who's just feeling a little bit shaky, your faith is real, but you're just a little bit, a little bit unnerved, don't back away. You don't have to drink the Kool-Aid that the culture is pouring for you that says that God's truth is disconnected from reality. And with that, I want to transition to this table. There's two ordinances, two practices that Christ gave the church. Baptism, the symbolic dying and rising with Christ, and the Lord's table, the remembrance of his death on the cross. These two things Jesus gave to the church to perpetually practice. Whether you sing hymns or contemporary songs, the Bible doesn't tell you what to do. <laughs> whether you wear a tie when you preach or whether you wear flip-flops or shorts cut off jeans, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. But the Bible says two things you need to do. You, you need to remember baptism and the Lord's table. Now, why is that? I, I suggest that God knows we forget. And if you think about those two realities, how, how would our faith fall apart if we forgot those two things? Baptism, if we forgot that by faith I have died and I now live with Christ. And if at the Lord's table I somehow forgot that Christ was my righteousness. You see, those two things you cannot forget. And that's why we practice this. As I prepare to make my way to the table today, I'm gonna to encourage you, if, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, please partake, you're welcome to this table. It's a table of remembrance, his body broken for you, his blood shed for you. If you're still a seeker and you're not quite sure, I'd ask you to just hold off. Because I don't want you to get confused that thinking by participating in a ritual here today is gonna to get you anywhere. This, this, this doesn't. Christ is your righteousness. This is an act of faith. It's a, it's a declaration of trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection. We need to be sure of the things that we hope for. Would you pray with me? Father, as we prepare to go to the table, we ask that you would encourage us and confirm in our hearts the truth of these things. Lord, would you Help us to take responsibility for the things that we've heard. And if we need to give them a more urgent hearing, do that. Lord, please forgive us for the ways that we have neglected you, the ways we have suppressed the truth, turned a blind eye to what your word has made so clear. Thank you for Jesus, our righteousness. In his name we pray, amen.